If you're just excelling at traditional academics, like you're already losing. You know, how often when you were in school, when someone told you what you were going to learn today, were you motivated or interested, right? So we know why we don't remember this stuff. We know why it's not retained and it doesn't even matter. Part of what the, you know, the direction we're trying to move schools to is not assigning grade values or numerical values on a performance on an assessment or a test uh, or an outcome, but rather looking at a continuum of growth. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud, and I'm very excited about our guest today, Dr. Jennifer Groff. I heard Jennifer the first time on Tim Logan's podcast, Future Learning Design, and I really got excited about what you have to say about curriculum, about moving forward, about uh, where we are in terms of teaching and what needs to change in order to meet the demands of tomorrow. She's got a tremendous amount of positive energy, excitement, drive, and I contacted her and we shared a conversation and uh, she was kind enough to uh, donate some of her time to um, uh, the Coconut uh, Thinking and the Meaningful Learning Podcast. Jennifer is the founder of Learning Futures. She was the Chief Learning Officer at Lumiar Education. She received her PhD from MIT Media Lab and her Master's from Harvard Graduate School of Education. In this conversation, we talk about innovation, real, deep, curricular innovation, pedagogical innovation, how to support teachers through this transition, and really what it means to move forward uh, and whether or not incremental change is the way or whether it's just a question of starting over. So I'll leave space for the conversation. I really hope you enjoy it. Please let us know your thoughts. And uh, here's uh, my conversation with uh, Jennifer. Well, well, hi, Jen. Thanks so much for, for being on our podcast. Uh, I uh, heard uh, a, you know, a great um, uh, conversation that you had with Tim Logan a, a few weeks ago, and I got really excited about some of the things that you were saying, particularly in terms of curriculum and, and the dynamic nature of curriculum, or at least what it should be. So, so I'm quite keen to pick up on that and, and maybe uh, take it in, in another direction. Uh, but the first question I'll ask you is, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to, to be on your show, your podcast. Um, so uh, I'm a researcher, designer, uh, change maker is I guess how I describe myself, all the things. Um, and I am the founder of Learning Futures, and I'm, which is the organization that helps to, schools to transform and change their model of teaching and learning. Um, and I also am currently the research fellow at WISE, where I'm leading the development of the WISE Innovation Hub. Um, and Pretty much most of my career has been dedicated to both understanding, you know, what is better learning, what is effective education, and that's been a moving target in the last 20 years of my career, and will continue to be in the years to come, I'm sure. Uh, but also, I really am dedicated to supporting uh, learning environments and the people in those environments to make transformative changes to create better experiences and education for learners everywhere. And building up on that, I'll ask you a question that I ask uh, uh, all our guests simply because we need to have a common uh, shared uh, definition, understanding. How do you define learning and, and, and how does that work in terms of transforming that learning that you just mentioned? Yeah, so I think learning is an inherent innate process that we naturally engage in as humans. Uh, and as we interact with our environment, it feeds back to us information that we use in some format to then shape who we are and, and re-engage with the environment. So an ongoing natural cycle that is inherent to who we are. Tell us about the, the, the WISE Innovation Hub. What does that look like? 
Yeah, so the goal of that work is really specifically to look at how um, building what we call engines of innovation inside schools is a useful mechanism to help them transform. So we have decades of research, you know, showing how reform in education has largely not been effective for loads of reasons that it would take too long to detail here. But, you know, a lot of it is because it's piecemeal, it comes from the top down or outside in, um, the things don't work together, the innovations don't work together, there isn't a coherent strategy. But moreover, you know, one of my first master's thesis was looking at all the barriers to innovation. Why don't schools change? And there's a lot. In fact, it, it's almost built to be inner in some ways in the way schools are set up and the way we, we support schools to collaborate and share ideas and, and try new things. Like those are all not generally part of school culture, deeply embedded, right? So the WISE Innovation Hub uses this uh, innovation lab model to insert this engine of change inside the school. And so what that means is we work with a school who wants to do this and we help them build the capacity to do innovation processes from the inside out. And so not only is often a lot of those skills and practices unfamiliar to schools, it's generally just not a part of school culture, whereas it's been a part of many, you know, industry for decades. And, you know, there's loads of literature and tools and strategies that have been long fleshed out in industry. And that's what we pull from. There's lots of great stuff that has been used in many other fields and many other places. And we pull from that and use those tools and skill sets to support schools to make deep change, which, you know, if I know you work in a school, I started my career as a teacher. Um, I spent a lot of time in schools. Schools are hard. They're busy. They're, you know, it's, there's always a million things going on. You have little faces and little people that need you all the time. It's hard to make deep change. It's hard to get the space to even think about what that might be. And so um, much like consultants might be to an organization, businesses hire consultants all the time. We come in and be that external support to help them think about these other dimensions, other ways of thinking about teaching and learning, other tools or strategies they might go down a path on. And we bring that expertise, we synthesize all that research for them, make it digestible, usable, so they don't have to do that hard work. And then we act as co-designers and capacity builders. So we help co-design what they might try out, what direction they might move in. And then we also build their capacity to do that work, to be designers, to be mini researchers, to do innovation cycles, test, pilot, iterate things, see what worked and what didn't and what direction they wanna go in. And all of those are really great practices, again, used in industry, just haven't largely made their way into education yet. And so we're looking at how that it can be a useful mechanism to actually drive change from the inside out and from in a way that um, really puts the learner first. So when we are doing these innovation cycles, we're looking at what's the impact on teaching and learning? How's that impacting your users, as you might we might say in industry? And so you know that matters because at the end of the day, it's their experience that we're looking to support. And so we really want to understand what that experience is and design it better for the outcomes that they need. And I'll just end that. This this little segment by saying that, you know, where we're going in education, this has never been more needed. I think the changes that are going to happen in the next decade or need to happen are going to be massive and transformative. And so we need it's we're already sort of late in getting these tools and practices into schools. We need we need them now because of where schools are going to have to go. And I think this year probably opened our eyes to that. And I can imagine that even to be brought in, you'll, you'll have the, the green light from the administration and all those folks who, who pay the bills. So putting those stakeholders aside and, and, and assuming that that's the first barrier to get in. The second one I imagine is, is the teachers and, and the resistance that they might have because innovation also means change and change is very scary. And then the second one might be the parents who might not necessarily understand. How, how do you navigate those, those obstacles? 
Yeah, I mean, we could talk for this on this about for hours to come, but uh, you know, I I'll first start by saying that you know, to some extent we get invited in, but even then that varies a lot by schools. You know, there, it's very often, and this will be a big part of the report that we publish this summer, but a lot of the, uh, many school leaders invite us in, but you know, it's very quickly, it becomes hard. It's just hard work and it requires vulnerable leadership. It requires putting the, the controls in, in the teacher's hands in, in an unknown destination and putting often, you know, we advocate for putting the controls in the kids' hands. And so often that's really uncomfortable for school leaders as well as teachers, as well as parents. So, you know, the way the way we best try to navigate it is this is change work. And so that's inherently relational. It's inherently understanding whole people, who they are, where they're coming from, what are their values, their beliefs, their perspectives, and 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 meeting them where they are and being understanding and respectful of that. And it's also, I think, a big piece of this is also just bringing in more information and in new ways and sharing some, you know, because I get to spend a lot of my time outside of the system, I get to play in the research. I get to play in the data on the trends of the future that are coming, that are, you know, AI and the shift in jobs and skills that are going to be needed. And everyday teachers don't have time for that. And it's not really their job. You know, I think this is really where education and policy policymakers have really let down teachers because we ask them to change. We ask them to, you know, schools aren't good enough. They need to be better. But then we don't really do a lot to support them in that bridge work. And I think we're trying to help fill that gap. And to be honest, I think it should be a whole field. It should be a whole profession of people doing this work, helping schools to do this. And so, um, yeah, we, we try to really, you know, shake loose some thinking, share insights, share that argument, that motivation. And, and like I talked about on Tim's podcast that, you know, to show that it's a burning platform, that if you're you're just excelling at traditional academics, like you're already losing. And that's, that's hard for a lot of people to hear and to take in. And I get it because we've spent a lot of years and money trying to get to that holy grail and we haven't even succeeded there in many places. But I would also argue that's because a lot of our traditional model does not work work well. And so it's a bit like trying to, you know, adjust a broken vehicle. It's, you're just not going to, it's like, just get a new car. It's just time to get a new car. <laughs> so, so I, that's, I don't know if that answers your question. There's a lot of nuance to it though. And, and it's a really good point. That's where the biggest pushback comes. And so this, it's funny, this is, this is particularly uh, in, uh, relevant to me and a lot of the things that, that I've been thinking about, I've been talking to, uh, to my wife, Charlotte, about uh, even this morning, poor thing who has to deal with me waking up after a couple more cups of coffee than she's had. But uh, the, the, the idea of change is, is problematic. And, and I always think that, you know, we say, yeah, you know, the world of, of work is going to change and, and we need to prepare students. But really, um, and, and this is something we touched upon right before hitting record, it, it's also whether or not a teacher will become obsolete if they continue in the old system. Because I'm thinking that if you are delivering content, you might as well just set it up to uh, some kind of robot or cyborg that's connected to, to a whole network and that can deliver um, the best videos, the best you know, personalized worksheets that have kind of Newzella and can change the, the language, uh, that can uh, uh, understand uh, and predict if you responded positively to one experience, I'm gonna deliver you another experience. The, the whole thing can be replaced and, and get much higher quality delivery of content that, that to me is critical, but but what I want to get to you is is how does that plant in new forms and new conceptions of curriculum and and what curriculum looks like? Yeah, all great points. So I completely agree, and and it's actually my hope that you know 
learning technologies, AI, everything that we're building now and is coming down the pipe will actually elevate teacher, teacher as a profession and the respect and, and the need for them in society because it should be plainly clear to people now that content is not enough. <laughs> content is not even the goal. I mean, all the research shows that we don't even retain it. We don't, I mean, you know, I love the famous video of the Harvard graduation, you know, researchers went to Harvard graduation and handed out batteries, light bulbs and wires and asked them to make circuits, a simple circuit to light the light bulb and 90% of them can't do it. Um, which, you know, turns out also not a critical skill in modern life. So, and also something you can Google very easily, right? And so content is not, it's just not, it's a vehicle. That's simply how I see it. And I will say, you know, I, I before my current role, I was chief learning officer at Lumiar, which is a network of schools, innovative school models around the world. And um, I, I think that really opened my eyes seeing that school model because their content is just one option of what you explore. And it's a constant remixing of content and skills and competencies that, that go into a project design. And so there is no set curriculum. You sim learners come in with their natural passions, questions, interests, which elephant in the room from learning sciences, brain sciences, you don't retain anything if you don't have that. So, you know, how often when you were in school, when someone told you what you were going to learn today, were you motivated or interested, right? So we know why we don't remember this stuff. We know why it's not retained and it doesn't even matter, frankly. So it's just a vehicle. And I'm not saying we shouldn't teach science or kids shouldn't be exposed to concepts in history. Like there's certainly important things we need to learn, but it's just not, it's not the end goal. It's just the, it's part of the pathway. And so I think, you know, there's already great models of schools that use great learning technologies that are more more content focused, more adaptive in that way, that do spend time with learners on that, which frees up teachers to have much more bandwidth, which they're already short on now, to be much more focused on the whole child development, the whole learner development, their well-being, the social emotional skills that finally are getting a lot of attention. And so I, I hope that it's just, you know, we're just going to keep going in that direction. But the, the curriculum is the big, it's the big Frankly, I think it's the biggest barrier that we face because we've wrapped up policy and, um, you know, um, I don't want to call them sanctions, but, but you know, we, we, it's really, we put a lot of high stakes onto the policy around curriculum and then therefore what should be taught and when. And it just goes against everything we know from the learning sciences on how people learn. And to me, it's just poor design. You know, again, if we had looked at curriculum design, standards design through a designer's lens, and we actually tested what we designed before we launched it out in the world, we would have seen how bad this would have had an effect on things. It would have had a really, you know, you can see that that it's not a good experience. It's not giving us the learning pathways that we want for kids. And so the movement toward competencies is helping us um, shake loose of that, but we've got a lot of work to do. And a lot of uh, the issue and uh, is is the excuse, I'm going to call it that, throw it out there, of saying, but that's not what universities want, because even to get looked at by such and such elite, and I use uh, inverted brackets for that school, you need to have a certain GPA. And once you need that GPA, you're back in the system of having to perform in school. So so what is going on at the university level that, that perhaps can change that because ultimately they need to control their inputs and schools can judge on those outputs. So where do you see that falling? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. So 
Uh, for a long time, I think that has been the biggest bottleneck is entrance exams and the whole pipeline of education. If we think about it as a linear journey through the years of, of our movement from childhood to adulthood, that, that entrance exam point ends up being one of the biggest um, bottlenecks in the whole system for making change because it's the whole, it, it directs back to K-12 on and making any changes. Well, we can't because then kids won't get into college and the colleges that they want. Um, and then if you're not getting into the right college, well, that affects your career trajectory. And so it really is the, the kink in the system. But thankfully, that is starting to shift. More and more universities are changing that, both in entrance exams. They recognize, you know, thankfully, that's not actually a great predictor of who's going to do great at college. But also, universities are slowly starting to move to this competency-based model, too, which is great to see. There's a lot more that has to happen there. I think they're the slowest sort of in the uptake of that. But I will say there's a, a whole initiative that was launched out of the US Chamber of Commerce Foundation called the T3 Initiative. And it's really incredible what they've done. They've garnered stakeholders across all sectors involved in this space. So everything from industry to foundations to higher ed, K-12, everyone involved, mostly looking at the shift in jobs that are is going to happen, the, you know, because of AI, because of technologies and just changing you know, technologies that shift our world. So moving from coal to green um, technologies and things like that. The, uh, the workforce and the work skills needed were, will shift dramatically and are shifting over the next 20 to 30 years. And so that has real implications for how you know, we have careers over our lifetime and where the jobs are and how do you make those shifts when the, the jobs move in this direction? How do I upskill? And so this conversation started there, but it's now back channeling then into this whole ecosystem of learning and mapping skills and growth over time. And so what's happening in that work, which is really fantastic because it much more effectively aligns with how people learn, is an ecosystem model where people will have an individual passport of their profile and the skills and competencies that they have. Notice they're not tracking the knowledge so much. Um, I mean, it's in there, but it's it's just not the focus. It's the skills and competencies. And so what we're seeing happen is these networks of players building this infrastructure to have this kind of currency, this new digital passport that goes with you in your profile and, and ways in which you can then piece together your learning anywhere. So learning that you do in any venue, online, offline, can be tracked and mapped to your profile and you have a better sense of what skills do I have? And well, I wanna go here next, so how do I get that degree? Or how do I get that job? Well, I need to get these courses. And now I have all these options to get these courses and all these different places, whereas before I thought I had to do a two-year or four-year degree. So this whole emergent ecosystem is coming up around K-12 and higher ed, and it's gonna have huge implications for education that I don't think many um, people in education have awareness on yet. And it's going to be like a title. It's going to tidal wave at some point that is going to be like flipping a switch. All of a sudden, it's just going to be a whole different ballgame. So. And, and, and this brings us back to this idea of change and how teachers are coping with this. And, and I imagine that when you're working in the innovation hubs, uh, you're, you're kind of bringing this up and, and it might be too much for people to process, like beyond yeah. their point. How how do yeah. people react towards it? What is the point where they where they embrace it? And, and of course, you're going to have a wide uh, a variety of uh, of reactions. But but what are some of the ways that you get a, that you again um, overcome some of those and, and, and to make it work? Yeah, I I will say you know it's it's probably more of an art than a science. I. I don't have a formal background in change work. I've done a lot of research in that space and learned a lot, but you know, I know people make whole careers out of that in industry. I, I have not, I just do it with schools. But 
I think it, it's an art in understanding where they are and where their mental model is and what might be the right next step for that mental model without overwhelming them or blowing them out of the water or thinking like, this isn't relevant to me. And so everything I just shared with you in the last five minutes is actually not usually things that I share at all or definitely not immediately with schools. I think that the very wonderful thing is that many, um, many uh, projects, initiatives in education have evolved enough over the last decade that have created really nice on-ramps into this transition. So we've seen over the last decade, a big transition and push for competency-based education, sometimes called mastery-based education, personalized learning. They're not exactly the same thing, but they're all in the same space. And there's been a lot of work in that direction. And a lot of that actually came from not from wanting to build schools that, again, aligned with how people learn. We learn in our own natural pace, pathways, dimensions. I might be amazing at math, but terrible at writing, you know. And so we're going to have, we're not even learners. And as Ken Robinson used to say, we don't, you know, we bake kids in batches, and that's just not how kids grow and how we learn. And so you see the problems from that, and yet we just accept that that's still what school should look like. I don't know why we don't question more deeply what's not working. That design doesn't work. We actually have lots of research to show that doesn't work. Maybe we should try something different. And so, so over the last 10 years, there's been a lot of work done in that space. And that's helped a lot because as you get more and more schools going in that direction, it becomes more of the discourse. You start to see more examples. It starts to be more, you know, less weird and more doable and, and a lot more frameworks that have come out to help that too. So the OECD has their Learning 2030 initiative that they, they launched their framework in 2018. It's a great roadmap or it's not, it's a compass actually, which is a good metaphor for what it is because it really points schools in this direction. So we start with all of those as on-ramps as like it's still a big pivot we're asking schools to make or encouraging them to make, but those are much more digestible on ramps for where they're coming from than sort of the big picture tidal wave change that I just described. So, so going back to curriculum idea uh, and and change, if I'm working within one framework and I've got, for instance, a um, a, a re writer's uh, reading framework and another one. Um, and then uh, I, I change it and I compare the two, it's pretty easy to uh, compare the outcomes of what we have. Uh, writing is improving based on this and that. But when we're talking about completely different frameworks, completely different modes of you know, issuing, getting rid of a curriculum in order to maybe design a process that might be more, uh, um, touch more learners in, in effective ways to get them motivated, you're really comparing apples and oranges. How would you recommend that we look at the differences and the progress in learning when we're moving away from a traditional system, using that word loosely, to something that might be different. How, how can we compare the, the, the changes in learning when, when really we're working with different tools, different vehicles, and even different purposes? Yeah, so it's a good point. I'll, I'll try and answer it in two ways. One is that most schools can't give up their old curriculum, at least not whole, in lock, sock, and barrel. They usually can give up some of it or make more time in the week or calendar year for other things or, you know, sort of redesign the curriculum a bit, but they still have to be beholden to the old stuff for a while. So, so we accommodate that and that's really where good design comes in because then we can design sort of bridges and, and interfaces and things that make that manageable and, and doable. The other thing I'll say is that 
part of what the you know direction we're trying to move schools to is not assigning grade values or numerical values on a performance on an assessment or a test uh, or an outcome, but rather looking at a continuum of growth, which again, coming back to how how learning and development naturally is. And so it's it's getting those continua in place and then helping break loose through thinking from that. That's the, really the hardest part is getting out of that mindset of what's the grade because we're really training kids then to just look for the grade, which is part of the problem. And they're also then looking for just the right answer, which turns out is not how the world works, right? Like I don't know many parts of my life where there's like one simple linear right answer. So, so we're really trying to help them embrace the growth mindset and that idea that you're on a, a continual trajectory of developing critical thinking. So where are you right now and where do how can we help you grow in your building of that critical thinking? And so that that's the biggest challenge. And it is absolutely oranges to apples. I mean, it's just, it's completely different. And, and that's the hardest piece, I think. And that continuum is based on a mastery model then going from, from point yes. to point as well. And so how is that assessed? Do you see, I mean, there's different ways of mastery, transcript consortiums trying to figure it out and saying, oh yeah, but it's up to the schools. Yeah. So, so how, how do you see that maybe being, uh, uh, in, I guess, individualized to the, to the, to the context. I don't know if that's the right expression, but you understand what I'm saying and, and yet have yeah. some kind of coherence so that those who do look at the passport or whatever it might be still can make sense of what we're doing. Cause there needs to be some kind yeah. of standardization in the personalization, if you know what I mean. You'd think, <laughs> <laughs> um, not yet is what I would say. And I, this is actually one of my biggest concerns for this whole ecosystem I was just talking about, because even outside of K-12, this is a big issue and there is no standardization. I was just looking at an email conversation from people in this group tonight about this. It's a real problem. This is actually what I did my dissertation on because I think that if you don't have common maps as it were of what these competencies are, then you'll end up with a total sort of mishmash of what you can do. And it's a real, it's a real problem. I mean, I, I think we should have these sort of open models that are available and, and validated by psychometricians and learning scientists. We do that already with, you know, other types of assessment and we do it with learning progressions, other research on learning, but it would be a heavy lift. I think that's partly why it doesn't exist right now. But even then, you know, that already happens with schools, even within standards. If you actually go look at how a school actually teaches and assesses things with grades applied and all of that, it's still, it's the same problem. So we really are stuck with when you, like what MTC is doing and what others are doing in, in modeling transcripts and these kinds of things, it's really referencing back to a framework and you have to understand what that framework is. It's not a good system. And I think this is the missing piece. I think if we could get a funder to really back doing that open model research to make those at least some, you know, a set of 20 or something of them, these core skills and competency, at least at K-12 that are needed, it would make the system a lot better. And it should be that way because we should have common maps of how kids develop these skills. That shouldn't be that hard. It will take time, but it shouldn't be that hard, so. And what you're saying is, is so relevant in the sense that there's this idea that if we have standards and so forth, uh, it'll be, uh, you know, it's all across the board that everything is, it, it, there's no, there's no um, uh, acceptance that, that grading, marking, seeing if someone meets the standards in itself, tremendously subjective. Um, and, and that's yeah. why moderation is there. And Will Richardson says, why are we trying to replace an imperfect system with a perfect system? It's, it's gonna be messy. Um, totally. But how then do we convince folks who are outside of education 
who might, you know, who, who, who have been in school 30, 40 years ago to accept that that's, that that's the way forward and be accountable. Where does it come from? The, the OECD, the workforce will come in, the universities will come in. It seems to me that, that we may not have to convince parents, it will just happen, but, but I don't know what your, what your views are on this matter. Partly, I, I think it will partly just happen. I think there, you know, there may be a tipping point as, you know, the generation of parents rotates through and, you know, I, I, I was born just, we're called like that micro generation where I was, you know, a teenager when email became available. So I'm that, I'm that, you know, weird six year anomaly that I can talk both languages. So I can do analog and digital. Um, but, you know, I think, so as these generations move through and they become the parents, it might get easier because the world that we're, they're inhabiting is just so different, right. Than, than what, you know, the generation before them that their parents, so they might, their parent, the, the grandparents might have more, you know, a harder time with that shift. So I think some of it will come in time. Um, you know, I think it's spot on that it will be an imperfect system. I, part of the research I was doing in my dissertation work was even just looking at what's there now. And we were looking at how like astronomy 101 is taught across universities. And even within the same state system of universities, it's taught vastly differently and with different assessments. So, you know, saying what the people can do is, is totally all over the place. So it, it already is really bad. Like, I think it's really bad. We have, we've only up to go really. I think the biggest concern, the two biggest concerns is that the, and we've run into this particularly with one of the schools we're working with is that, that the traditional academics are everything. Don't mess with them. And if you do, kids' future and their chance at getting university. And so there is a lot of re-education that, that higher ed can actually help that with the piece because looking for different things that will help that conversation. It still won't be easy. Um, but I, I this is getting more of higher ed and 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 that's and it goes back down to that higher ed because you know clearly the uh, the the success metric of any parent is to get their kid into an Ivy League school or a Russell Groups University and 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 you you're not you, you haven't become a enlightened fulfilled person until that happens. Um, what and and what about now? I've had this conversation with Tim um, about this idea of can you have change within, or should we just say, basta, we're going to secede. Uh, and, uh, and and just start something new. Where do you see the tensions there and the possibilities, the opportunities and the challenges of just saying, we're gonna start something new as, as opposed to trying to change with the inside? Yeah, it's a great point. So um, in 2010, there was a OECD project called the Innovative Learning Environments. And we were looking over 180 case studies of already innovative school models around the world. And in that project, we were looking at this question and UNESCO at that time had a really nice framework that looked at this sort of transformation of moving from what was like called emerging as a school, just starting to try some new things all the way up to transforming. And we ended up adding to this model and putting a beyond that redesign because so many of the case studies that we were looking at did exactly what you said, which was saying, none of this works. We want to start fresh. And actually there's a real power in that because so much of innovation gets kicked out of the system because it doesn't work with the other parts. It's like trying to, you know, have parts from a different car into the car that you have. They don't work together. And, and that really is true. And, and then a lot of the change work that we're doing now 
even then we'll try and get a school into competency-based learning. Well, if they're not doing project-based learning or problem-based learning and they're not doing performance assessment, that really doesn't work well. So it really is like getting people into a whole new model. And so, you know, it's a real challenge. I will say it's a lot easier to just start fresh. That it just is. We have great examples of, of schools that did that. You know, the RSA did that with one of their schools in the UK where they, they took a traditional, what we would call in the US a charter school, shut the doors one year and reopened it a year later, totally different. Um, I think it's the best example I've seen of a, what we call public school doing that. But that's the real challenge. Most, most school systems won't allow for that, right? But change, changing an organization is a lot harder and a lot longer in process than designing new. So, you know, I have to advocate for both. I recognize that redesign isn't possible for, in many places and it's really powerful. And so I think the more we can elevate those examples and models, I hope it inspires more people to, to go in that direction. One of the things that um, uh, has come up uh, on my radar has been the, uh, the I mean, it's, it's been a question that's been going on for decades, it seems, but it's, it's the role of the arts and specifically the arts uh, in all its forms uh, to promote creativity and therefore innovation. Um, how do you see um, the arts playing uh, or being resurrected, the importance of having the arts embedded throughout the system, English, math, whatever it might be, more than just STEAM? I'm talking about a real fundamental em embedding of the arts within school and curriculum. Do you, do you see that as possibly being a trend? Are people thinking about that at all? Yeah, you know, like in education, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> we love to chase the shiny object and then the pendulum swings and we go in the other way. And I think arts has suffered from that a lot. We kind of come and go with it. I think that, you know, I, I, where the discourse is at the moment, I don't see us going hard in that direction. It sort of comes and goes. It depends on what part of the world I'm working in and what school. Um, but pedagogically, and you know, from my background, I would very much advocate for making lots of space for that. I think that the more we can also start to make those connections as we build out better models of these competencies and make the connections, because then the second question we always get at schools, which also needs more research and materials to go with it, is how do I teach this and how do I assess this? <laughs> Both very good questions. I didn't learn that when I was in my teacher education program. Um, you know, we'll make those connections more. And so, and also bringing some of that research in. So absolutely, you know, if you go into it's very playful. It's making a lot of connections to different areas. They use a lot of the arts as mediums to, to, to explore different concepts and, and to pull things together. So I, I hope that that will be the case. The research certainly supports that, but I don't know. I think at the moment that's it's we're still not there. And it's probably just another thing that's on that that's on that radar yeah. map that needs to be addressed. I'm going to go back to this idea uh, that, that you brought up about the teaching and assessment piece and, and bringing competencies there. Give us examples, perhaps, of what those competencies might be, how we can show mastery. There is the model of Mastery Transfer Consortium that's you know out there. What ways do you see that working? Are there alternative ways? What's going on with these passports, mastery, and competencies? How, how is that looking? Yeah, um, it's still early days. Um, I think it's just a good design and engineering problem, though. So again, if we could just get some good support behind it, it's a problem that's easily fixed. I do think I've been quite impressed by Mastery Transcript Consortium's product. I think it's a really good step in this direction. We've had them demo with a number of our schools now, and it's really interesting to see our schools' reactions to it, even the schools that have embraced setting up an innovation hub. <laughs> 
so, you know, it's, it's a lot to take in. It's a lot of big shift. And that's one of the reasons we asked them to demo, because I think seeing that sort of end goal of what you're heading toward is really helpful to visualize how that affects backward mapping curriculum and pedagogical changes that we're asking them to make now. But it's still, it's a big shift. It's, it's quite a change. Um, I think there's a number of good examples of schools that have made their competencies and their rubrics that they use to actually make them actionable publicly available, which is great. It'd be great to have more schools doing that and more organizations. Um, and those are really broad maps that help just give indications of what does it look like? What does critical thinking look like as a child gets older? You know, a lot of the schools, many schools use the four C's or the six C's is at least the core. And for some schools we work with, that's where we start. Because to me, that, that's the lowest hanging fruit I can ask someone to kind of glom onto. I don't think it's sufficient, but I think it's the core. So let's start there and hopefully build out that flower of competencies, right? And add petals to it. Um, and those, that's, you know, creativity, critical thinking, communication, collaboration, um, sometimes civics and, and ethical thinking and things like that get put in there as well. Um, each of these can be broken down into subskills, basically, you know, with creativity, things like generating new ideas, divergent thinking, being able to then call those ideas, pull them down into, narrow them down into a smaller set. Um, you know, these are, there's lots of very easily kind of chunked and supported subskills that you can look for and support a learner in developing. And it makes it much more actionable. And so when you see these competency models, they're kind of like rubrics. They break down these broader competencies that we're talking about into subskills that are actionable, measurable, and, and observable. Um, and so we, it, that makes it really usable for schools then. And, and so we spend a lot of our time helping schools learning how to use rubrics. Um, even though rubrics have been around for a really long time, teachers are sort of all over the map in their understanding of how to use them. And, and particularly when it comes to something new like this, being, you know, teaching these competencies in a way they've never had been asked to teach something like that before. And so um, we really spend a lot of time talking about good rubric design. We spend a lot of time prototyping and playing with that. So testing new ideas, we walk that journey with them. And that's why we think this innovation lab model is so powerful because it's not linear and that can be frustrating for some schools. It's busy, you know, you just want to get to the destination, but you know, we try and argue the journey is the destination. The journey is the point. We're bringing you all along for this change together. And that's not going to be linear, just like learning is not. It's going to be messy and inviting them that play into that play space of trying new designs, trying things in their classroom um, the way anyone else would building a product or trying to give a better experience to customers, you know, and, and we do that because it works well. It delivers better outcomes for people in the rest of society. And so we want to do that in schools too. And so we've really, it's it's a bit of a jump to get teachers into that mindset, but once they get there, it's a really great way to have them playing and pushing and pulling on these rubric designs and how to teach this in the classroom. And in my mind, that's going to be the pedagogical professional development for years to come. Having, you know, we, we talk about schools and have for years, schools looking at um, problems of practice. So, you know, teachers coming together and looking at like essay design or essay writing and really pulling that apart and looking at pieces of examples from their learners and and really doing that as a way to improve their practice and really understand student learning and there's really great research behind that it's a really great method and i think 
what I hope to see is schools doing that, but with these competencies and refining these rubrics over the years and really talking about what does development of these look like because what does development of our learners look like? So that, that's what I hope. I don't hope that answers your question. But, but it does, and, and it brings it back to what you were saying earlier about these continuums, these continua uh, about how really we can, we can mastery might not, it's not an angle, it's like it's step by step by step. And if we put learners on a continuum, then we can see where they need to go further on. Um, yeah. And that's quite individualized, isn't it? Because then we take away the the, the age-based uh, uh, situation, and we're just moving on. It's not just about oh, you've hit it, and then I'm done with you. You know, go read a comic book. Um, yeah, and that and that's the part that can be also really uncomfortable because it's the whole. Most schools are organized in managing the process of education in that linear age-specific way, and so um, yeah, I think the more we can have teachers also experience you know, environments where it doesn't have to be like that, where there's more fluidity, there's more flow and movement and learners are empowered to move around that environment as they need. It's a totally different way of organizing a learning environment and, and empowering your teachers to do that, but it's so powerful when you do. And we're gonna go around completely full circle about the way that schools are structured because everything that you're bringing up requires time and time to think and sit and, and exchange and go deep in conversation which oftentimes doesn't happen in schools when so much of these uh, staff meetings are about you know, the, the, the sports day or about uh, student-led conferences or about organizational matters. So that has mm -hmm. to change as well. And, that, you know, and, and, and maybe you know, the first step would be, let's, let's, let's use technology to video ourselves delivering these messages. And then you know, maybe people can post questions on Padlet or something like that, but that would free up it. But that's even understanding that, that teachers need time to think and that they're hungry to think and talk and exchange is, is a fundamental shift. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I'm gonna point to the Lumiara as an example, because I, I think it's just a really great example of this. And we, we had done this work with other schools, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second, but in the Lumiara model, the teacher uh, is, not, is not generally the one in charge of the content. So the way that they organize their school models in tutors and masters, and they call teachers tutors, and they are really worried about the overall development of the learner. And they help structure the projects that the kids dig into. They worry about mapping their growth over time, but they bring in masters. And that word is meant in the like apprentice sense. So, you know, you bring in a master printer or a master artist. And they, they so the project is about robotics, which is what the kids wanna do. And, you know, how many teachers know about that innately? Not many. And so, but someone's parent or someone in the community does robotics or a local company does. And so what someone's willing to come in and sort of be the expert in that domain and lead the project, it frees up the teacher so much to be able to have that conversation about what is going on with the learners, what it's needed, the school, the whole cadence of the school is entirely different when you are able to redesign in that way. And so that's why, you know, it's, again, this change work is so hard because it's asking, uh, we're really asking schools to sort of run the old model while also running the new model at the same time. And it just does not work that well. I mean, I don't wanna discourage schools from trying because we need to, but it's a lot harder trying to do both. There's a real power when you sort of reset the system to be organized in this way. And there's just, it just has a whole different cadence. So um, one of the change projects that we did in Boston a number of years ago was working with schools, even public schools, 
where they put their whole model on the table and redesigned all the parts together to work more coherently. And one of those aspects that we looked at was the role of time and how we organize learning to free up time. And all these are variables like on a dashboard that you can play with. And when you think about designing a school in that way, you, you open up a lot of opportunities to address these problems. But we, we very often don't think like designers in education. We think like problem solvers or fixers. Um, and that hasn't worked out very well. <laughs> you know, that, there's it just there's a lot of research that shows that has not worked. So appreciate it. Listen, Jen, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to leave this uh, last space for you to say anything that's on your mind, what you've been thinking about, stuff that you're doing, um, anything at all that, that you'd like to share. Wow, thanks. Um, your questions were so fantastic. I, I feel like I said on my sound. <laughs> I'll just I'll just end by saying, you know, I know it's I, I I think about these the system from many different aspects and I think we need to because all these aspects influence the system and we should be concerned about them so that ultimately we are looking at a whole system design that puts together the outcomes that we seek. And so I know that can be a lot to sort of hold in your head and manage and, and isn't necessary for everyone to, but I would encourage everyone to, to start to embrace that designer's mindset. You know, if you haven't done a design thinking course, IDEO puts out a free one, it's fantastic. Learn a little human-centered design skills. It's a fantastic skill set that everyone should have. And I really just encourage everyone um, to sort of start to think in that direction of the what if, so what if, how might we, what if we, you know, and just try those different different ways of approaching what you're doing, get playful with it, um, because that's how good learning is, playful learning. Um, and, and it's how we're going to get to a really good destination through these challenging years we're going to have ahead of us. Thank you. How, how do people get in touch with you if you want them to get in touch with you in the first place? Oh, great. Um, you can reach out on my uh, website at learningfutures.global, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jenna. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was really fun. This has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud. Thank you so much, Dr. Jennifer Groff, for uh, joining us on the podcast. Really excited to uh, have forged this relationship, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk to her uh, a bit more down the road. Um, just wanted to say thank you to everybody who goes on um, the podcast uh, website, as well as our blog, www.coconut-thinking.design. Uh, and I got a couple of blogs that are lined up that really relate to the conversation that you just heard, specifically about replacing teachers with androids and also the idea of whether it makes more sense to uh, secede from uh, the traditional school structures rather than trying to build it from inside. So look for those in next week or so. And in the meantime, uh, again, check us out, www.coconut-thinking.design. We look forward to your thoughts. Uh, send us an email and uh, speak to you soon. Thank you.